All right. Good morning, new community. How are we today? Uh, how distracting is that guy working on the blacktop across the street? A little distracting. Russ, can you shut those doors back there, please? But when that McDonald's is done, it is going to be nice. I tell you what. So we, uh, we are starting in our final message of our and series, where we've looked at some of, uh, some of the most famous and yet most difficult to understand Old Testament passages, Old Testament stories. And all along the way, we have been wrestling with the idea of what is God up to in this story? What possibly could God be trying to communicate to us through this difficult to understand story. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the beloved character of Daniel. Daniel, a Jew, was living in the 6th century BC under the Babylon Empire. And due to his talent and his conduct, he ascended to a place of authority and respect during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar through Cyrus. All right? So uh, Daniel is towards the uh, end of the Old Testament, and the book of Daniel can be broken into two halves. Chapters 1 through 6 are the court stories, as they're called. And it's Daniel and his buddies. We all know the three names, the three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And how their faithful lives bring glory to God in the midst of living as exiles in this pagan empire, the Babylonian empire. Chapters 7 through 12 are a series of Daniel's prophetic and apocalyptic visions affirming the truth that God will be victorious and honor his promises despite the current persecution and suffering of his people. And the entirety of the book is a fascinating look into God's work through his people while living in exile. Okay, So that's the foundation, that's the book of Daniel that we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's pause there. Let's pray for a moment that God would help us to better understand what might be going on in here, and then we'll jump in. God, we approach your scripture with humility this morning. We come to the story of Daniel, and we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to your truth. Lord, for uh, those of us in the room that have familiarity with these stories, who have read these stories uh, in children's Bibles, in our own Bibles, may we see them in new ways today. Spirit, we ask that you would convict our hearts of your truth. May we be a people that hears, that understands, and is changed through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So chapters one through six is where uh, we find some of the most familiar stories from Daniel, none of which I'm actually going to dissect this morning. We're not actually going to look that deeply at the six different stories that we find in those chapters, but all of which I believe show us something about living as a set apart people. So with broad strokes, here's chapters one through six. Chapter one, Daniel and his friends stand firm on their covenantal dietary restrictions 
And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, sees the fruit of their standing firm on this covenantal dietary restriction. Chapter 2. Daniel boldly and wisely interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the king honors Daniel because of that. Chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse idol worship that the, uh, that the Babylonian Empire had set out. And with the help of a fourth figure, the scripture talks about, they are not consumed in the fiery furnace. And because Nebuchadnezzar gives glory to God. Chapter 4, Daniel boldly tells Nebuchadnezzar the truth of his dream, and the king humbles himself and gives glory to God. Chapter 5, Daniel boldly and wisely interprets the handwriting of God for Belshazzar, and the king honors Daniel. And chapter 6, Daniel stands firm on his worship of Yahweh and is therefore protected in the lion's den, bringing Darius to recognize the God of the Jews. What do you notice about the six stories? Repetition, right? Seems kind of like the same story several different times. In fact, anytime you see repetition in the Bible, that's a clue that something might be important. Something critical is happening here. And this is no different in chapters one through six. It's essentially the same two events being communicated multiple times through different ways. It's Daniel and his friends existing in an empire, but living into their covenant identities. These stories show that it's not only possible to live within and even serve a pagan empire loyally without compromising covenant identity, and that God is faithful to honor those who live for the kingdom. Now, to fully understand this, I think we have to talk a little bit about Babylon, all right? So Babylon, a historical empire in ancient Mesopotamia, forms in uh, 18th century all the way through the 6th century BC. And many of the Old Testament stories take place in and around and through this empire of Babylon, Daniel included. Babylon was an oppressive empire built on the back, backs of slavery. It valued militarism and security at all costs. It was extravagant in its lust and materialism, propelled by greed. It overtly honored the rich and powerful while overlooking and degrading the poor and powerless. It was an idolatrous nation standing in the way of God's people's ability to truly live into their call. And therefore, Babylon, throughout the biblical narrative, New Testament included, is used as an image of that which is exactly opposite to God's kingdom. What we see in the story of God's people is that over time, the ways of Babylon and empires like it have a strong gravitational pull, that they can reorient even the most faithful of people to value the wrong things and live in ways that are more consistent with empire than with kingdom. This is why Babylon is a picture used throughout the scripture. Because since the beginning of the story up until today, the call for the followers has always been total allegiance to kingdom and a different way of life of that than the surrounding culture or the dominant empire. All right? Now, here is where I tread on thin ice. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. 
And as I say this next statement, don't tune out the following 15 or 20 minutes of what I'm about to say, all right? America is simply a continuation of the Babylonian Empire. Now, certainly a gentler and kinder Babylon, a Babylon that has extended freedoms and liberties to many of its people, a Babylon that I believe has sought at times to do the right and the good thing. But we need to be honest that the unspoken values and the isms that drive our country are simply degrees to what Daniel experienced. In this way, America, as a modern-day version of Babylon, is not, nor will it ever be, synonymous with the kingdom of God. Somebody needs to get up right now. <laughs> Sounded like an alarm. Look at that, just diffusing tension in the room. Man. <laughs> Brian Zond, uh, an author that uh, I have read uh, in the past couple of years, says this. America is many things. It's a country, a culture, an empire, and a religion. As a country and culture, America can often be respected, admired, and celebrated. But as an empire and religion, America is a rival to Christ. One of the reasons that Christian discipleship is so difficult in America is that we are trying to make disciples of people who are already thoroughly discipled into a rival religion. You can either operate under a governing philosophy of America first, or you can seek first the kingdom of God, but you cannot do both. Now, I know some will disregard Zahn's sentiment as heretical, and some will likely hear my words this morning and conclude that my ignorance is founded in entitlement, and that certainly might be true. However, I say this with as much humility as I can. I do not believe the kingdom of God and America share the same value set. And I think in this way, they are constantly competing for our total allegiance. This means that if we choose to live as a kingdom people in the way that Daniel did, we have to live a different type of life than the surrounding culture that we live in, all right? Before I explain exactly what that means or maybe how we might do this, I need to ask a series of questions and I'd like your honesty. How many people have heard of the game Monopoly before? Raise your hands. Keep your hands up, actually. I was just curious if there's somebody in the room that had not heard of Monopoly, and I do not think that is the case. That's why I used it, right? Uh, of those people, how many of you have actually played the game Monopoly? Most of us, right? So I would guess in my life, I've played somewhere in the realm of two dozen games, full games, because we've all played like a 10-minute game, and you're like, this is ridiculous. I'm putting this thing away. Two dozen full games of Monopoly in my life, and I have found that there are really only two ways to play Monopoly. Two different strategies to winning Monopoly. The famous boardwalk and park place strategy, right? where all of your resources, all of your attention, all of your time is to securing boardwalk and park place. And then there's the other way, which is just the other way to play. The boardwalk park place strategy necessitates a ton of prayer. 
In that way, it's kind of the spiritual strategy. You pray in the early part of the game to land on those properties with the ability to purchase. Then you pray toward the end of the game that those who you are playing with land on those properties and they have to mortgage the rest of their properties in order to pay you off. I can respect the strategy because it's bold, it's risky, and even though you're shrinking the entire board and placing all your resources in a very narrow window of opportunity, it's a strategy that I have seen work. I played recently with my son, Berg, my middle son, and I will say God showed up in an incredible way and answered his prayers because I landed on boardwalk multiple times and he absolutely obliterated me in this game with a perfectly executed strategy. Is it the best way to consistently win? I'm not sure that it is. More commonly, I think a diversity of quickly developed properties, emphasizing the reds, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, and the oranges, Tennessee, St. James, and New York, right? Those will secure the game more consistently than the boardwalk and park place strategy. But the truth remains, and here's why I share all of this. The truth remains that you need a strategy when you play Monopoly. Whether bold and risky or calculated and methodical, you have to be intentional when you play Monopoly. Those who just start rolling the dice, working just to pass go, acquiring properties as they feel like they want to, and hoping that they'll land on free parking every now and again, will lose the game. That is not a good strategy. I believe the same is true for how we are as a kingdom people and how we live into our covenant identities. You see, it's too great of a call, too great of a responsibility to just leave things to chance, to not have a strategy, to not think deeply about how we should live and act within our modern day Babylon to bury our heads in the sand and just hope for salvation through some free parking type luck is not what Jesus modeled, nor is it what he calls us to. The Christian life at its core is supposed to be different. It's supposed to look different. And this brings us back to the book of Daniel. Because I don't see in those first six chapters Daniel just leaving things to chance. I don't see, his, see him as a character that just kind of go with the winds of change, hoping that he continues to land on his feet. He was disciplined. He was methodical in how he played his game of Babylonian monopoly. Here are a couple of things that Daniel does. He humbly works for and accepts the responsibility and authority that we see him achieve, right? His earnest pursuit in this places him at the table of conversation, and then he uses his platform to radically speak and live for God. He continues his practice of covenant disciplines. He was unwilling to compromise on his food restrictions. He was unwilling to give up his daily practice of prayer. These were a few of the identity markers that made him different in that surrounding culture. And in that way, he became countercultural. He was unabashed in how he used 
his God-given gifts. As a prophet, he was uniquely gifted to interpret the divine and spiritual. And we see him multiple times use that gift to speak boldly for God, even in a culture, even in an empire that wouldn't recognize it. He allows and trusts God to move. He had to be filled with dread when he was surrounded by the lions. Of course. But the story does not communicate him pleading for his life. It doesn't communicate him running away in fear. Instead, the story displays a constant and unwavering trust in God's movement, knowing that living his life in this way might lead him to the den, but trusting in God's deliverance. Now, these are things that we can simply see in the story and incorporate in our lives. They should be, right? We should work hard to be in places of influence for Christ. We should hold on to our covenantal practices, even in a culture that may not value those same things. We should seek often to employ the gifts that we have been given by God. We should cultivate a deep trust in God's sovereignty, in God's protection, because we know that God honors those who are faithful to the kingdom. Daniel was strategic in how he lived. I think we as Christians should be strategic in how we live, especially because we live in an empire that has such a strong gravitational pull. Will Willimon says this, do I pray at the window like Daniel or keep my faith safely in the shadows where I won't attract attention or cause offense? When the values of our culture or nation become so comfortable or commanding that they no longer rub against our faith or God's mercy, grace, and generosity, it is very likely we are living our faith a bit too quietly and safe. I understand that we don't live in the same time that Daniel lived, that being set apart in our modern context is maybe a little bit more complex than it was in Daniel's time. So I thought I would leave you with a very, very simple strategy to being countercultural. Two very practical things, very practical ways in which we can live a kingdom life. Two ways which I believe might be able to jar us loose from the tightening grip of the empire around us. The first is this, be radically generous. Be radically generous. Jesus talks about our need to be generous perhaps more than any other topic in Scripture. It's been said that one-sixth of all gospel passages deal with how we should steward our possessions and our wealth. In the Sermon on the Mount, he challenges us by saying this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul speaks the same sentiment in this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good 
work. Greed is the primary driving force of all empires. And if left unchecked, it will slowly poison and suffocate your spirituality. This, I think, is why we see Zacchaeus have such a radical change. Because when he finally got a taste of the kingdom, he pledges to give half of everything he has away and then says, anybody that I've cheated in my past, I will repay fourfold. Zacchaeus had had a belly full of the empire's Kool-Aid, and when he encountered Christ, he had to purge himself of that. He knew the only way to truly enter into the kingdom, to live into the kingdom, to be a kingdom person, a follower of Christ, was to be radically generous. Brian McLaren says, unless you are prepared to be in the minority and now and then be called narrow and fanatic and to be laughed at by men because you will not do what they do but abstain and resist, then there is little chance of you ever making much of your Christian profession. One of the greatest ways we can live a life different than the world around is to be radically generous, to live with less, to give more. Because this type of life is in direct opposition to the foundational value of empire. And it will always reorient us back towards the kingdom. Be generous with your money. Be generous with your stuff. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your energy. Live a life of radical generosity in all aspects and see if the people around you don't notice something different and slowly start to change. If you are not a generous person, person, not only is your life mirroring the system of the empire, but I believe you have to question how you can reconcile your citizenship in the kingdom. Here's the second one. Be unimaginably kind. Kindness seems easy, doesn't it? I mean, it's the focus of every single kindergarten class in the history of the world. Be kind. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. But are you ever amazed at how void kindness is in our culture? Somewhere along the way, we've allowed pride and arrogance and power and anger to inform our posture in all types of different situations. The reason is, is because empire does not value kindness. It doesn't value kindness because kindness is inherently about the other person. And empire is always concerned about self. Kindness requires grace and patience and joy. Again, none of these which are valued in the empire, which uses fear to motivate and perpetuates anger and divisiveness as legitimate ways to deal with problems. Scripture says this in Ephesians, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, 
forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul recognizes that its context was existing under the dominant Roman Empire. And to simply be kind was challenging for them. To be compassionate was challenging for them because their whole lives they had been given a steady diet of empire. That it doesn't matter how you treat someone else. It doesn't matter how you talk about someone else. What only matters is that your own desires are fulfilled. But now, as citizens in the kingdom, they needed to be reminded that they were called to speak differently. They were called to act differently. They were called to be different. That citizenship in the kingdom demands that they think of others before they think of themselves. This, I think, can be a good reminder for us. To truly be kind in every interaction would not only change our lives, I think it's one of the greatest assets we have to change the world. To truly speak kindly about other people, even when they're not in the room, even when you may disagree with them, even when they might be the leader of the very empire that's competing for your allegiance. To be kind in those times, to be kind in those ways, is what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom. America is a great place to live, far better than the Babylon of Daniel's time. But I caution you from thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, that America is an extension of the kingdom of God. America is the place we live. The kingdom is where we are citizens. And those are two very, very different things. Matthew 10, Jesus, as he's sending out the 12, he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus knew that his disciples were never going to be able to speak of the kingdom while living in an empire without a strategy. Being wise while innocent was his strategy, and he spoke that to his followers. Playing Monopoly without a strategy, although a faster way to get done with the game, will not lead you to win. The same thing is true when you live in an empire as we do. If you have no strategy beyond going to church, if you don't question everything that you were fed, everything that you were told to seek, you will end up losing. You will become nothing more than a pawn in the system, convinced that the kingdom and the empire are symbiotic, and they are not. They are competing for our allegiance. Daniel understood this when he lived in Babylon. Jesus understood this when he lived under Roman oppression. We must understand this as we live in our modern-day Babylon. Zahn says this, the last quote for the morning. Like Daniel and his pals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have to figure out when to be willing to serve and when to refuse to bow. Sometimes we can serve with pride and pleasure, but at other times we have to brave the lion's den and fiery furnaces for the sake of fidelity to God. 
let us employ a strategy of radical generosity and unimaginable kindness. Let us work our way out of the grips of the empire's greed and fear and live freely in the kingdom of God. Amen. Would you pray with me as we bring up the band for a few more songs this morning? Lord, we understand that what you call us into is an incredible responsibility. And it is not easy. And we get that, Lord. But we also trust that your yoke is light. And that if we look towards generosity, if we look towards kindness, if we look towards forgiveness and compassion and patience and humility, that we will be able to live freely in the kingdom. So all of those things that entangle us, Lord, all of those ways that we still feel anchored down, that we feel chained down to, free us from those things. May we be like Daniel and strategically move our way out of a value set that we see around us and fix our eyes on you and who you are as Lord. Be with us. Help us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.